Lecture 8, Genealogies and the Tower of Babel. A genealogy is a boring list of names, mostly fathers and sons. That is what they look like at first glance, and most readers of the Bible gloss over them as uninteresting. How many of you have taken the time to read word for word First or Second Chronicles? I remember many years ago, a girl reading at a Lessons and Carols service got mixed up and read the begats from Matthew instead of the assigned reading. It was both boring and funny at the time. But genealogies are important in the Bible. And like many things in life, when you look at them more closely, they are magnificent. They tell us so much about a people and the way that they understood salvation and their relationship with God. There are 11 chapters in the book of Genesis that contain genealogies, 11 chapters out of a total of 50. That's more than one-fifth of the book. If this is indeed the word of God, what is God trying to tell us? Since genealogies take up so much space in the book of Genesis, we must look at them and ponder their meaning. Just like with the rest of Scripture, they are present for a reason, and their impact upon us is profound. Genealogies in the book of Genesis are like bridges between portions of the story. They link periods of history by recounting the ancestors that bridged the gaps between the periods. They are not necessarily father and son, but often great-grandfather to great-grandson or something along those lines. They skip whole generations, but the line of descent was what was important not every single individual. Again, we must put the precision of our modern minds aside to see what they were trying to convey in these records with missing generations. Remember that God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. The genealogies are our response to that command. Survival was not a given in the time of the ancients. Life itself was fragile and bound to the land in a kind of interdependence that is foreign to us today. To have a child, especially a son, was the greatest accomplishment of a person's life. Life was not about what you did or who you were, but more importantly, it was about your procreation. There was simply nothing more important than having children. Genealogies were formulas, a kind of mathematical poetry using repetition and numbers. They would repeat the same words for each generation mentioned, but occasionally when there was someone remarkable, they would alter the pattern. There is a genealogy of Cain in chapter four and a separate genealogy of Seth, the third born of Adam and Eve in chapter five. It is from Seth's line that Noah is born. There are important messages in the numbers of generations mentioned There are 14 generations from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile until the birth of Jesus. Seven was considered a holy number. Embedded within the concept of a genealogy is the notion that families are intertwined. Qualities of goodness or of sinfulness will be carried from one generation to another, Humanity was not viewed as individual people, but as a whole line of descendants. Family lines have characteristics and qualities unique to each one. 
They are, in a sense, living organisms intertwined in blood and birth. The word genome comes from the same root as genealogy. Genome is a living reminder that we are all interconnected to one another and even possess qualities of one another. Regardless of our relationships with our families, we are bound to each other in a kind of mathematical and mystical fabric, which is our biology and our being. The ancients knew this. They knew that we were intertwined, connected, and influenced by our family line. There was no distinction between biology and nurture. Does it really matter? Our family affects us and shapes us into who we are, either by forcing us to grow and reject their behavior or by nurturing us into the fullness of who we are. In the genealogy of Adam and Seth, there is a remarkable exception to the line. A man named Enoch, who did not die, but walked with God. Scholars have no idea what this means, except that maybe, like Elijah, Enoch was just lifted up to heaven. Somehow this Enoch was different, and in a pattern of the same words used to describe generations, different words are used to describe Enoch. This simple deviation and claim that Enoch walked with God has generated what Robert Alter calls mountains of speculation. Later, two whole books would be written about Enoch, and these books can be found in the Apocrypha today. Those are the books that extend the Old Testament and are viewed as part of the Bible by Roman Catholics, but not by Protestants. The verb to walk here is the same verb used when God is walking in the garden. Does Enoch return to Eden? It is a mystery. It is no coincidence that Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam, for numbers were important to the ancients and the number seven was considered a holy number. The lifespans of these earliest humans seemed to last a very long time, either because their measurement of time was different or perhaps because they were closer to Eden and lived much longer lives. We then move into the story of the Tower of Babel. And all the earth was one language, one set of words, and it happened as they journeyed from the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us bake bricks and burn them hard. And the bricks served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, that we may make us a name, lest we be scattered over all the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the human creatures had built. And the Lord said, As one people with one language for all, if this is what they have begun to do, now nothing they plot to do will elude them. Come, let us go down and baffle their language there so that they will not understand each other's language. And the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, for there the Lord made the language of all the earth Babel, And from there, the Lord scattered them over all the earth. The story of the Tower of Babel is one of those stories that is incredibly depicted in the original Hebrew. Alter, the translator of the Hebrew Bible, writes that the prose turns language into a game of mirrors in this story. 
The people are moving from east to west like the sun, developing and maturing. They say to each other, let us come together and build a city so that we may make us a name lest we be scattered. And God responds by mirroring the opposite, by tearing down and scattering. The people say, come, let us bake bricks to go up. And God says, come, let us go down. They don't want to be scattered, and God does scatter them. The word language occurs five times in this brief text, as does the phrase, all the earth. The language of the text itself dances into opposites and turns itself around. The word bitumen, haimar in Hebrew, becomes homer, which means mortar. The word sham becomes the first syllable of shamaim, which is the word for heavens, and an odd echo of the word shem, which means name. In this way, the language is subtly blurred, even as God sets out to confuse. The Hebrew balal means to mix or confuse, and it is a pun on the Akkadian word babel, which meant a gate of the gods. The word Babel occurs in a wide variety of languages, English, Norwegian, Latins, Greek, Sanskrit. It is as if the word itself carried across the linguistic boundaries. When the people build the tower, it is reminiscent of the Mesopotamian ziggurats. Basically, in that area of the world, as in most all areas, human beings wanted to make something permanent, something that would last beyond their deaths. So they tried to make stone buildings, or in this case, brick. We see the same phenomenon today when folks who are wealthy will not just commission a gravestone, but they will build a little stone monument or even a small stone house in the cemetery. Just go to Evergreen Cemetery here in Jacksonville and you will see these monuments that basically are saying, yes, I may be dead, but I had a lot of money. Human beings want to be immortal and we realize that our death is approaching. Often we try to make something that will last well beyond our own lifespan. No natural element seems to last longer than stone or brick. When you go to the Holy Land to see some of the places where Jesus walked, what you end up looking at and touching are the stones that could have been there when he was there. No grass or trees could last that long, but stones, they do. So the early humans wanted to last, to make an impact, so they decided to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. This did not mean that they hoped to reach heaven. It was a hyperbole found in high towers at the time. It was a way of naming oneself into permanence, to make a large impression, so to speak. The intention that any of us have to reach beyond our lifetimes is not something that God intends. We were not meant to be permanent. We are dust. Any attempt that we make to have an eternal imprint is bound to become distorted and fail. We are simply not meant to last in this dimension. We were meant for God's kingdom only and not to permanently reside in this world. We, as the psalmist wrote, are a breath that comes and is gone. I am very much in favor of cremation or of the burying of bodies directly in the ground, if that is allowed. I love this new idea that folks have had of planting a tree over a grave. What a beautiful concept. I think we must remember that we are human, part of the humus, the earth, and just go back to that. These concrete graves with expensive coffins are an attempt to be permanent, to make permanent marks upon this earth. 
but they are arrogant and misguided in concept because nothing that we make will last forever, not even stone. Let us admit that we are dust and allow our bodies to return from whence they came. When you consider that God granted us the gift of language and the ability to name the creatures of this world, the fact that God splits and scatters this language is even more befuddling. Any good linguist can tell you that language is reflective of culture. To speak another language entirely is to think differently. It is to enter a different mindset, a different way of thinking. Separation of language means a certain kind of schism in communication. Difference of culture makes it harder for humans to express to one another the complexity of their feelings and thoughts. Hence, war becomes more likely. Conflict, misunderstanding, even the ability to see the other as less than human becomes possible. The results of this schism of language are devastating across world history. We cannot know one another fully when we speak other languages. It is yet another reverberation of the expulsion from Eden. We try to become like God and in doing so suffer the consequences. The city is equated with our hubris, while rural land is more pleasing to God. The height of the tower in the city is taken as an affront to God. To make something permanent and lofty is bad, and God makes us less like God as a result. Isn't this a common phenomenon in life itself? When we try to be perfect, to pretend that we have no problems or that we can accomplish anything, we become separated from one another and from God. It is only our brokenness, our vulnerability, and our hope that bind us together. The most successful human beings who seem to have reached great heights of achievement in their careers or raised the perfect families These people we may admire, but we don't love them. We don't connect with perfection. We connect with shared pain and suffering. The city is considered a result of human pride and striving, and when God scatters the people, they leave the city abandoned. It will not be until the book of Revelation that the city will be redeemed. Questions to ponder. What do genealogies mean to you? Is your family tree something that you cherish? Do you think it tells you about yourself? Do you believe that our ancestry affects who we are? Second question. How have you experienced the differences in language? Do you believe that people think differently in different languages? <laughs>